Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about a major Peruvian election, the showdown between Russia and the UK near Crimea, and the ceasefire in Tigray. All that and more coming up. get right into the rapid-fire news. So, the decision on the EU military mission to Mozambique is set to be made in July. And this comes as Portugal wants to intervene there. Um, And the reason they want to intervene there is because there's been a major militant uprising in Mozambique, uh, Islamist in nature, as is a lot of these more militant uprisings in Africa. Although Ethiopia is a bit of a different case, and we'll be talking about Ethiopia later on. But the major Islamic militant uprising in Mozambique, uh, Portugal wants to expand its influence there again. And they want to use the EU to do it. And if I'm not mistaken, they the Portuguese are in charge of the EU presidency right now, which sort of increases the likelihood that this sort of goes through. Not guarantees it, but increases the likelihood and would be a major move for Portugal, if it's, exce- if it's successful, mind you. Um, but granted, I don't see the other EU nations putting much of their own sweat, blood, and treasure into this little venture, despite agreeing to it. So that's kind of the nature of the EU. Um, but the Portuguese will probably put a lot towards it, and therefore they'll reap the rewards if it goes well enough and I guess that's all they need major power plays being made and we'll we'll just have to see where they go um and I'll say this too that I it's sort of a another marker in this growing European influence in Africa or at the very least a growing attempt from the Europeans to have influence in Africa and that attempt is currently spearheaded by France, who's engaged in a whole lot of uh, anti-militancy operations in West Africa. Uh, again, namely, mainly Islamic in nature, and that's sort of uh, the war on terror casus belli that they've used uh, to engage in these conflicts. And now I guess the Portuguese are getting in on their share in their former colonies as well. But... um. And interestingly enough, though, it's not just France and Portugal, but Spain is getting in on it, too. Although they're taking a more trade-related stance, Um, they want to have better trade relations and sort of get in on Africa's investment potential um, while it's still... while it hasn't taken off yet. But that said, that being said, that's still them trying to get in on Africa. They're still trying to get a sphere of influence in Africa. And I'd imagine that with strong enough commercial interests and given the proximity to home, it, if something were to happen, like say, uh, I don't know, 
an Islamic militant uprising in a country you're heavily invested in and you've put all this money, well, your companies have put all this money into major infrastructure projects, maybe maybe you send a couple of troops. Maybe you send a couple of peacekeepers to keep the investments safe. Then you have an occupation. Um, a willing occupation, partially. But if the Russians can do it, so can the Spaniards. So we'll, we'll just have to keep our eyes on these on these sly dog Europeans, because it looks like it looks like these three are up to their old tricks again. And they were the ones who led the uh, who led the colonial venture the last time, so perhaps they'll lead it again this time. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. But um, yes. So that's Africa. We're gonna jump on over. Um, to Afghanistan, where the Taliban has seized control of a border crossing between Afghanistan and Tajikistan, uh, further cementing in the minds of many that Afghanistan is losing, and losing fast, because now the Taliban has control over the routes in and out of the country. And I'd imagine sooner or later it's going to include that little air, those airstrips that the United States is currently concerned about right now, with regards to our embassy in the country. Sooner or later, the Taliban will get around to those, but uh, I suppose they're doing their best to not provoke the United States, at least until after September 1st, when the new Biden administration says that they were going to leave. Now, it was supposed to be supposed to be May 1st under Trump, but it's going to be September 1st now, and September is coming up. So I'd imagine... This sort of reduction in violence, specifically towards the Americans in Afghanistan, um, will last at least up until that point. Beyond that point, uh, the Taliban is probably going to be like fair game. Everything goes, and they're going to go unrestricted submarine, submarine, unrestricted mountain warfare on the U.S. troop presence there, and that in itself will probably trigger some sort of weirdo call to stay in Afghanistan because no one seems to understand nuance of violating your agreements but um aside from me being a voice in the middle of the night um ignored uh on issues that uh I would say that I'm right on you know you know I'd say I'm right maybe you say I'm right too maybe we both say that I'm right and that the people governing us are wrong but you know what I'm right on this one, but that's the way I see that playing out. And but for the time being, the Taliban is taking control over more of Afghanistan, and it's sort of at this point just interesting to me to see how long it takes other people to realize that the uh, the Taliban's in charge here. And I guess I'll have to. They had they have like a an official name that they call they refer to themselves as. Um, I'll look it up again, because I've forgotten, but uh, maybe I'll just have to start referring to them as that. Hold on, hold on. Cheating complete. <laughs> so the Taliban refers to themselves as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Maybe maybe we'll just have to start calling them that. Instead of the UAE, which is the United Arab Emirates, we might have to start calling them the uh, IEA. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the IEA. Is that what we're going to call them now? Maybe. Maybe we'll pretend they don't exist. Give them the 
the we don't recognize you treatment for a couple decades, and then we'll call them the IEA, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. I wonder how they'll be, um, I wonder what the reception to them is going to be throughout the Islamic community, um, you know, in their neighborhood, mind you. Uh, wonder how Pakistan's going to take it, because they may all be Muslim, but they don't all like each other, so I hope that'll be something to look out for. And I'd imagine, I'd imagine their stance towards, say, Iran may, may cause schisms, it may not. There's been a bit of a, repro a reproachment throughout the broader Middle East with Iran, not necessarily to like them, but to hate them less uh, and focus more towards the um, heathen, that is the non-Muslim heathen in the room which for them is Israel. And perhaps the conflict there can be used by the Taliban to sort of get in on the good side of all of their Muslim neighbors simultaneously um, while they're, you know, in the weakened phase of just having fought a civil war to give them some sort of breathing space to put themselves back together. When everything is said and done, they might just go, oh, look, look at what the Israelis are doing to Palestine. Um, we should send equipment. We fought our war against the oppressors, and we gained our uh, freedom and our independence against those puppet regimes. Maybe it's time for Palestine to do the same. Maybe that's the sort of rhetoric we might hear out of them to sort of get in on the good side of everyone in their neighborhood. We know that's sort of what Turkey's doing. Not to that extreme, mind you, but they're putting their weight behind the Palestinians. So, and that's garnering them some good press in the Muslim world. So perhaps the Taliban will use that same strategy slash tactic to buy them some time to piece themselves back together after fighting a civil war. Because I'm sure they don't want to be partitioned between them. Um, well, they don't want to be partitioned between Iran and Pakistan. Uh, and I, they don't want it to be... Um, well, they just fought all this time uh, against the United States, so I'm sure they would appreciate having their country to themselves. So, well, it'll be interesting to keep our eyes on the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. I mean, that's what I'm going to start calling them now, just because it sounds cool, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Taliban. Well, that's the Taliban. Um, they, they're seizing border controls now. So, speaking of Afghanistan, we... Biden has said he plans to keep some troops in Afghanistan, and this again comes out of the um, the major paranoia going on in the upper halls of my government about whether or not there will be a safe and secure airport for our the people working in the embassy in Afghanistan, so that they can you know leave when they want to go home. So, I should say. That I saw this coming, but I I guess now I just wait for the part when he says that we can't actually leave uh, without a proper exit strategy, and it, it will be at that point that I will know definitively we're never leaving, um, and that may actually happen given the rapid advance of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan throughout Afghanistan, and it might it might spook them into doing something like that. 
Oh, no, no. I, I just, I just want to go home. Man, look. We've been there all this time, and we got the guy. He was in Pakistan. We got Osama. He's dead. I don't see why we still need to be here. Makes no strategic sense. But strategic sense is bad for strategy these days. So, I, they, I guess we've just outlawed who, people who can look at a map. But, that's Afghanistan heating up and becoming exponentially more interesting just like the rest of the Middle East. Uh, to which I will never stop expressing my surprise. Um, but, anyway, we have, uh, on the other side of the world, we have Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Um, he has made it through a confidence vote. Um, which is where the people in the parliament vote yay or nay on whether or not they have confidence in the leadership of, well, their leadership. And uh, apparently they do. I know. He gets a lot of flack from people who don't. So, maybe this is representative of where the country actually stands. Maybe it's just representative of the politicians. Only time will tell. But for now, Trudeau is in the clear. And that's probably uh, weighing good on his conscience, uh, at least until at least until something major happens. But for the time being, he's in the clear, and he's probably going to use it as a mandate to sort of push major policy positions in Canada. The success of those, we don't really know. I don't, I don't know who's necessarily in charge of their parliament right now, but it's an opportunity nonetheless. And speaking of prime ministers, though, Sudan's prime minister has expressed his worries over the political schisms within the country's military. Um, and we've talked a little bit about Sudan in passing. Well, really a lot in passing when touching up on Ethiopia or Turkey's potential uh, prospects in the region. Uh, and namely, that the fighting in Ethiopia combined with the destabilization that's going to happen from them building the Renaissance Dam is going to potentially lead to a shatter belt. Because um, Ethiopia is in a civil war right now. And again, we'll cover the latest development in that in a few moments. Um, Ethiopia is in civil war. Egypt is going to have major upheaval when the Renaissance Dam is completed and the Nile gets dried up. Uh, not completely dried up, but shrinks by substantial margins because the dam is built on one of the tributaries into the Nile, the Blue Nile, if I'm not mistaken. So that's going to have massive ramifications, a lot of them negative, on Egypt, who has a population of just over 100 million people, and a lot of them are farmers. A lot of them are farmers. So you can imagine what drying up their water source is going to be like, even by just a few percentage points, which it's not a few percentage points, it's projected like 25% um, around the, the Delta area, which is where it empties out into the Mediterranean, and like 75% for everything else, which is basically the thin strip of good land. Uh, right along the Nile River, the parts that run through the desert. So you're talking about the, that thin strip getting uh, reduced by 75%. Uh, that's a tragedy waiting to happen. That's going to be destabilization. It's probably going to be political radicalization, if we're completely honest. 
uh, imagine a hundred million people suddenly switching over to radical Wahhabist Islam. That would be horrifying to anyone who isn't uh, subscribed to that ideology themselves. We could see revolutionary Egypt. A second revolutionary Egypt, mind you. They already had one. But this time they go more um, France-style with their revolution and go causing trouble in the neighborhood. And, and you know, actually, that's something I didn't think about. I knew that they would have major upheaval, but I never really thought about what they would do, what would happen in response to that upheaval. That could be something that actually happens now that I sit and think about it. And they have way more people than their neighbors in every direction, really. Who? wow, that could be, that could be a mess. It could be a whole mess. It could justify Turkey sending troops into Libya to stop them from in getting invaded. Well, Libya itself is in a civil war, because they're in a civil war. Egypt's going to go through some upheaval. Ethiopia's in a civil war. So Sudan is sort of like the rock in of the region. They're the only one who's not uh, facing major upheaval. In fact, they're looking at potentially a good future by way of the Renaissance Dam. The Ethiopians are going to give them cheap energy as a sort of bribe to let them dam, dam up the water. But e- e- not Ethiopia. Sudan is in a bit of a political crisis right now. Um, and their prime minister is sort of sort of brought that more to light because you have to sort of dig uh, if you're not in Sudan, you sort of have to dig to find this out. And he's expressing worries over political schisms in the country's military, which is the last place where you want milit where you want mili- That's the last place you want political schisms is in the military. Then you have factions fight each other when the two factions can't agree uh, politically in you know the civil discourse realm in the, the government itself. They can't agree there, then suddenly the military doesn't cooperate. That could be a problem. Although that's a problem that remains to be seen, but it's a problem that can present itself in the worst possible way, which is a civil war. It wouldn't make Sudan the first, obviously, to be in a civil war, but it would cement this region as being a bit of a shatterbelt of just destabilized countries. Um, All of them with the potential to put themselves back together, mind you. All of them. Um, Ethiopia, Sudan itself, Egypt, uh, whether that's through peaceful or revolutionary militarism, um, and even Libya is on track to piecing itself back together. Sudan falls. It could delay um, Ethiopia and uh, Libya's attempts at putting themselves back together, and quite at, well, actually, if they fall into destabilization, there could be a problem with the construction of the Renaissance Dam. My eyes are always on what's going to happen to this dam. I feel like it's a high-priority target, and it's going to get assassinated. Um, that's my stance on it. But for the time being, we could be looking at a shatter belt in Northeast Africa, and that would open the door to predation from outside powers, namely Turkey. That's the number one. That is number one. Because all of these territories, minus Ethiopia, 
used to belong to a certain Turkey, a Turkey formerly known as the Ottoman Empire. And could you imagine if they were to just walk in and say, you know what? Maybe we're gonna, if they're going to take a page out of the Russian book and just send in peacekeepers throughout this entire read, they would grab up this massive swath of land over the course of however many years that they felt like doing it. And that would be huge. That would be huge. And for reasons I've expressed before, the, the strategic depth that it would give them, the massive internal market um, that just owning, just having Egypt would give them, the breadbasket of Egypt. Now, granted, they'd be in a bit of a famine period, but hey, look, you can export your goods to Turkey and turn a bigger profit. Uh, that ought to help you, right? And then Turkey has access to food um, that it doesn't need to import from outside of its borders, technically, if Egypt is a part of the empire. And they would own the Suez Canal. Massive trade artery, massive tax revenue. Wink, wink. A lot would be gained from going south. So my eyes are on Turkey and my eyes are on this region. Because it may not even just be Turkey. Other people can step in if this region is destabilized to such a degree. And Turkey is poking and prodding to see where they can get in. And they're getting in where they can. They're getting in where they fit in. And they would fit in like a perfect key and a perfect lock if this were to just fall apart. Northeast Africa, I mean. So I'll keep my eyes on this one. It's, it's all, it has my attention. So now I'll keep my eyes on it. Meanwhile, speaking of Turkey, their tourism industry is uh, happy to see the Russians again. Because Russians go, travel to Turkey a lot. So now they're sort of re removing their restrictions due to the pandemic. Which again points to my point that it is the lockdowns and restrictions that hurt the economies. And not necessarily the, pack the pandemic itself. But now that they're easing up on restrictions, um, they're getting their tourism revenues back. So we may see a relative uh, gain for Turkey, given that their economy is coming back uh, and that specific sector is coming back. I know other countries are going to be struggling, but Russia is not locking down anymore, and Turkey doesn't need to worry about that. So we could see a relative power differential between them and other countries who can't seem to bounce back quite as fast. So we'll see how they play that out, uh, at least in the short term. Long term, it's demographics. Short term, it's the lockdowns. So their tourism industry is happy to see the Russians again. And Russia gains more soft power influence, just from existing, really. Uh, so we can add that to the list of uh, major accomplishments that they've achieved during this little crisis we've been in, um, which I guess we just put that right on top of the vaccine diplomacy that they've been up to, where they've been outsourcing the production of their vaccines to sell them, and doing a really good job at it, I'll say. I don't, I'm not quite sure how much uh, moolah that's brought in for the Russian government uh, and the Russian companies producing them, the vaccines, but I'm sure it's a fat stack, and I'm sure it's very much appreciated. So, 
we'll keep our eyes on good old family favorite Russia for major power plays and moves that most people don't even notice. And that's how they operate. Uh, the UK is in negotiations with Singapore for a digital trade deal. Uh, that is a trade deal that handles exclusively in non-physical goods. Non-physical. So think uh, cybersecurity and fintech or financial technology, which are, um, the reason I brought those up is because those are the key points of interest that the UK wanted to bring up in the negotiations because that would be beneficial to have access to the Singaporean market for the UK's cybersecurity and financial technology uh, sectors. Uh, they call it fintech, uh, so I had to I had to look this up because I didn't I had a feeling that I knew what they were talking about, but I didn't want to jump on here assuming things. Uh, so fintech or financial technology. So think payment systems and financial transfers and things of that sort. Yeah, yeah, London, it's London. So yes, well. Leave it at that and see where this goes for the UK as they continue looking for new trade partners in the post-Brexit phase. Uh, they did join, I believe they joined, uh, what was it called? Uh, oh, right, they they joined the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's what happened, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So we'll see the benefits that they reap from that and doing trade with a whole bunch of Southeast Asian nations. And maybe they'll even be able to get in on RCEP at some point. Because um, I'm not... In, I don't think... The, no, no. It's a regional agreement, so maybe they won't be allowed to do so. But perhaps they can get in indirectly by negotiating trade deals with each individual member state. Um... So, we'll see what the UK goes up to. They do have Kanzuk in the works, so that's their attempted renewed empire, although they won't call it that, and none of the other member states of Kanzuk are going to call it that either, but that's what it'll be. So, we'll keep our eyes on them, those sneaky little Europeans and their empires. But that's the UK. And we have... In the United States, we have more individual states in the U.S. moving towards audits of the 2020 election. Uh, these states are primarily the swing states. Uh, Arizona uh, is in a, the midst of an audit right now. I think they're coming close to finishing theirs. I know they started in like April, if I'm not mistaken. Late, like late, late April. So... I think they're getting close to finishing up now. It's a forensic audit. And now Pennsylvania is moving towards doing the same. Uh, which is why I felt... And again, these are swing states. So they kind of determine the outcome of the election. And which is why I felt it was important to bring it up. Uh, because if the result comes up empty and nothing changes, uh, we'll continue on course until we get to the midterms. However, if the vote flips, we could have a real mess on our hands, and it would only take a handful of just the swing states 
for that mess to suddenly fall upon us. So, another thing domestically for me to keep an eye on. Because um, it could have huge, very, very huge ramifications on, I'll be honest, the legitimacy of our entire election system. And the legitimacy of who our president is. And who our Congress is. And who all of our elected leaders are. Holy frick. If this audit doesn't go well for the elected leaders. Well, I'll keep my eye on this one. Like I keep my eye on a whole bunch of things. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are things I said I'd keep my eye on that I probably aren't. Am not keeping my eye on right now. But there's so much happening. There's so much happening. And I'm just happy I'm able to grab as much as I can and put it out to this little podcast of mine. But that is that. And we'll be back in just a minute since we're talking about elections. We're going to talk about Peru next. We'll get to that in just a moment. All right, and we're back. And we're here to talk about the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, I mean, the Crimean incident. The Crimean incident so as i've alluded to there's been a major incident that took place in the black sea and that is a british destroyer named the hms defender uh, sailed within 12 nautical miles of the crimean peninsula near the city of sevastopol uh, which is the major city down the very southern tip of the crimean peninsula uh, which is currently uh, under Russian control. Now, with that context, uh, well, I, well, for those who don't know, before I talk about context, I should probably give the context. For those who don't know, the waters 12 miles away from a coastline is typically regarded as a country's territorial waters. So, with that context, you can see the rationale behind what came next. And that was Russia firing warning shots at the HMS Defender. Uh, Again, the Defender sailed within that 12-mile radius of the coastline, a coastline that is regarded right now as Russian territory, at least by the Russians. And when the Defender did that, they got shot at, um, which I, I guess is kind of ironic that the HMS Defender did this and got shot at, given who's technically defending themselves in this this specific situation. Um, the Russian responders, uh, namely their air pilots who were carrying bombs, went as far as to drop those bombs in the path that the destroyer was sailing on, um, which implies an intent to kill. Alright. That's that's a little bit more than warning shots. Although they did fire warning shots at the HMS Defender. Uh, that's what I meant when I said they got shot at. They, the, Those were the warning shots, and then the Russians came in and dropped the bombs uh, and nearly hit them. N- nearly hit the Defender multiple times uh, before the incident was over. The Russians justified their actions saying they do this by saying that they were defending territorial waters which is why I brought up the 12 mile radius thing of the coastline so that you can see the Russian 
perspective and justification for their actions, the UK say that they were sailing through Ukrainian waters, and which is why I brought up that Crimea is regarded as being controlled by Russia, and therefore those are Russian-controlled waters in the minds of the Russians, because in the minds of the, the UK, those are not Russian waters, those are Ukrainian waters. So as far as they were concerned, they were sailing through friendly waters and were suddenly shot at by hostile Russian forces. Hostile Russian forces. Um, so you can see that's the, the UK's take on this. Um, they, which is basically just the complete opposite of what the Russians said. Um, and you can see how this almost led to war just through the major, major differences in uh, the perception of the reality here in this one place in the world and how it almost brought these two countries to war over the same piece of land for a second time. Uh, the first time being back in the, the 1850s during the, the Crimean War. Granted, the British had the French and the Turks on their side for that one, but here they're riding solo, and uh, I'll put my money behind the Russians on this one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the Russians believed they were defending themselves. The UK believed that they were sailing through friendly waters and were suddenly attacked. So you almost had a war. Now, technically, Crimea is under foreign occupation. That, technically speaking, but my opinion regarding this is that at this point in the game, it may as well be regarded as a part of Russia, even if on an unofficial manner, because the Russians are going to treat it that way. So if you're you don't want to just send a destroyer over there and wonder why you got shot at, you have to think about these things. So that's sort of a critique. Um, uh, yeah, this technically is a foreign occupation, but it's been under occupation for so long, and there's really no real effort of getting it back to the hands of Ukraine, um, so, and I, I mean that, like, as a, a war, the, the Ukrainians aren't gonna fight a war against Russia, <laughs> the Europe isn't gonna fight a war against Russia, at least not in they're not going to declare that war. They're not going to go. They're not going to be on the offensive. Um, Britain can't force the exchange of the island back, the island of the peninsula, back to the Ukraine. And Russia's not going to give it back. That's, there's no major movement in the UN to put it back in the hands of Ukraine. And even if there was, uh, I'm pretty sure at, at this point in the game, the China. The Russians wouldn't even need to use their veto. The Chinese would do it for them. They have a strategic partnership. So, there's no real moves being made to, you know, end this occupation of Crimea. So, that being said, the people in, responsible for authorizing this should, in my opinion, have taken into account that the Russians were going to treat it like Russian territory. And perhaps they did, which is why the destroyer act wasn't actually hit. Perhaps that was due to preparation in anticipation for being shot at. 
uh, with live munitions. So maybe I'll just leave that on the table for some credit where credit is due in the event that that's what went down prior to this happening. But while it is technically under foreign occupation, there's no moves to end that occupation and the Russians aren't going to do it for you. So in my opinion, it's basically a part of Russia right now. And that's due also in part to the new reality that is the Ukraine. Um, yeah, there's, the Ukraine is in a different political reality than it was back in 2014 when Crimea was seized from them and the rebellions in the Donbass uh, first started. Now, it is linked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so not only do you have a different, a new political reality in Ukraine, but the political reality also of Crimea being under Russian control. And so that's why I would say you treat it like it's part of Russia, because that's the new political reality. We don't like, many don't like, that you could just take a piece of land by force and suddenly it's yours, and there's nothing anyone can do about that. But the Russians have taken a piece of land, it's theirs, and there's nothing anyone else can do about that right now. So, I say we look at it from the political reality of what it is. Russia owns Crimea. And Ukraine, uh, that exists currently, is not the Ukraine we think we know. Because that's the second piece of this. The different, the different broader political reality in contemporary Ukraine. And that this is being that there isn't a state of war between Russia and Ukraine. Um, again, we would know, we know what would happen if Ukraine was in a state of war between them and Russia, but they're not. And yet the Ukrainians are not allowed to travel to Crimea, which is supposed to be a part of their country, but the Russians own that, and they're not at war with Russia, which means... And the Russians can move freely to and from Crimea, but the Ukrainians can't, without going through Russia first. Which means Crimea is Russian right now, not Ukrainian anymore. That's the political reality on the ground. Facts on the ground. And, the, again, there's not a state of war between them and Russia. Ukrainians aren't allowed to travel to Crimea. They're also not allowed to travel to the Donbass region, an area that is also supposed to be uh, part of Ukraine, but is instead an area where two separatist republics, Donetsk and Lugansk, have sprung up. They're backed by Russia, and Ukraine physically cannot exert their authority in those regions, and that's the reality. The reality is that Ukraine's borders need a bit of an adjustment right now to not include Crimea and not include the Donbass because they do not have the ability to exert their authority there. And it's not like it's a wild west, it's a, that the authority lies in completely different hands. And that's the reality that I see in the Ukraine after observing it for all this time. It's not the reality that I'm sure the Ukrainians want, or like for that damn matter, but that's the reality 
of their situation right now. These regions, Crimea and the Donbass, are no longer part of Ukraine, but separate political entities in the case of the Donbass, and belong to separate political entities in the case of Crimea and the Donbass. Uh, entities that don't exist in a state of war with Ukraine, well, except for the Donbass, but Crimea is not, so Crimea is just not theirs anymore. The Donbass, they can, they can technically take back, because they are at war with them, they can take it through war, but they're not going to be able to do that. If they could, they would have, but the Russians have ensured that that's just not going to happen. One of these days, the Russians will step in to... They'll send in peacekeepers and resolve the conflict because there won't be anything anybody can do to stop them at that point. Um, and they'll be very smooth with that transition from the status quo to them having foreign uh, a foreign expedition in your country where they control who is and isn't allowed to come in and out. You know, in a different time, we'd call that an annexation, but uh, today we call it Russian peacekeepers. And that's why I see this ending. That's why I see this ending. Um, but that's the political reality of the Ukraine, which I wanted to express so that we sort of got a, so that you could get an idea of where I um, see this region. And that is that it's it looks a lot different in reality than it does on paper or on Google Maps where Ukraine looks nice and thick but really in reality Ukraine's missing a few pieces because uh, those belong to different people and it is that reality that I feel should be reflected before we do things like sailing destroyers through the territorial waters of a country um, Yes. Yes. Because, again, this could have gone really, really bad. But luckily it didn't. Maybe that's due to the anticipation of the British leadership on board that of the HMS Destroyer. I don't know. I'm not there. I can just observe from my garage. So that's what I observe. And on a, as we sort of take a step back and look at what's gone on as a result of this that's caused a bit of a major uproar and it has stoked yet more fear among many of a war an impending war between major powers and while there is real merit to that and all you have to do to see that merit is to think uh, what would be happening right now if those warning shots and bombs had actually hit the HMS Defender rather than just spook its crew and shake them up a bit. Imagine what would happen if they had gotten hit. It would have been, it would have been the Gulf of Tonkin for real. I was joking before because of the parallels. But imagine if the ship had gone down because the Russians were putting bombs in the path uh, that the ship was sailing in. What happens if they hit it? What happens if the captain, who was steering the ship, uh, screwed up on a, and made a wrong turn by like three inches and hits a bomb? 
holy crap. Suddenly, the incident is that much bigger, and you can only imagine what would what would have went down if it sank on its way back to a friendly port, and the people on board died instead of living to tell the tale. There'd be calls for war with Russia. People would be saying that is a blatant act of war between us and Russia. The Russians need to be taught a lesson. You can't just do that. And again, the UK says they were sailing through friendly waters. Those are Ukrainian waters, all right? Ukraine owns Crimea, not Russia. So why are the Russians attacking us in Crimea? That's that's the way they see it. Now, I would say that they're wrong given the political reality, the realigned political reality of the region that I've been able to observe, which is that Russia owns Crimea now. But it doesn't matter necessarily that I'm right. It matters that they believe that that is Ukrainian waters. And they probably want to uphold the principle that you can't just invade someone's country and then declare part of it your own. So you can see that that divide on just the perception of the political reality of this region would probably cause a war if those ships had been hit. And that's caused a lot of fear. It's caused a lot of fear. It's caused a lot of uproar. Um, but having covered just a little bit of that and sort of the reasoning behind this spook towards World War Three for the millionth time this century, um, I wanted to sort of step back, you know, even further. Yeah, even further than we just stepped back a minute ago. Now I'm going to step back again. And I want <clears throat> to... Excuse me. I want to... I want to... You know what? No, we'll, we'll step forward and we'll step back again. Because I want to sort of cover a little bit of this war between Russia and Britain. Uh, assuming the loyalty of NATO which is a really big if these days, um, and specifically the NATO countries on Russia's border, this could have easily spiraled into a Europe-wide conflict. Like, a whole Europe-wide conflict, the likes of which we haven't seen in over 75 years. And anyone who does math can tell you that that was World War II. We haven't seen a conflict like that since World War II. And even then, I'll say it, my money's on the Russians. Because theoretically, the United States could with could by itself, if it mustered up the full force of our armed forces and sent a million men to Europe, we could probably duke it out with the Russians in the flats of Eastern Europe. It'd be perfect for our military doctrine perfect landscape for our military doctrine air power and lots of superior firepower the problem Russia can mobilize faster than we can and Russia's literally in Eastern Europe and we're not we're an ocean away so we'd one have to mobilize and two we'd have to send them across the ocean and three we'd have to deploy them into battle in large enough numbers to where it makes a difference instead of just having them get encircled and destroyed by larger 
Russian formations who are fighting near their home and on lands at that point which have historically been Russian before. So there'd be a bit of a national pride to taking back the lands. It would be a debacle. The United States would not be able to bail Europe out of this one. Um, and Europe would probably have to sue for peace before we could really ramp up to help them. That's the way I see that would go down. Not that we wouldn't be able to fight the Russians. It's just that the timetables and the logistics and the distances, just a whole bunch work against us. A whole bunch of factors will be working against us. The Europeans uh, don't really have armies. The British Navy has supercarriers, but the Russians have anti-ship missiles. So no one's going into the Black Sea, and if you have a navy in the Black Sea, well, you, you don't have a navy, is what basically is what's going down here. It'd, it'd be a mess, and the Russians have built an extensive anti-air network, so even our air power is somewhat counteracted. Our overwhelming air power is stopped by their overwhelming air defense systems. They have some of the best in the world. It'd be a, it's a, like a hard counter to the American doctrine. And again, even if we were able to mobilize, the Russians could mobilize faster and put their troops to use in larger numbers faster than we could. Just due to the simple logistics that they're right on their border and we're an ocean away. I believe that that would go down and Russia would walk away like a bandit from that peace conference and they would only need to negotiate it with Europe really if they make peace with the Europeans there isn't much the United States would be able to do from that point onward um, other than say harass Russia's seaborne shipping because I don't think D-Day into Siberia is a good idea uh, I don't think it's gonna be very much entertained by anybody um, Unless we have the crazy people in charge. But at that point, we'd just have to be forced to sue for peace, too. It'd be a humiliating defeat. NATO would effectively be dissolved just due to the divisions uh, from us blaming who was responsible for what. Uh, everyone, would, everyone would probably be blaming America for not being there, like we kind of say we would be there. I say we shouldn't, but a whole bunch of people say we should. We'd get blamed because of that uh, for not, you know, protecting countries we said we were going to protect. And the immediate response from us would be, well, maybe you should have had an army. <laughs> so right then and there, NATO would sort of basically die. NATO would die in this conflict, uh, along with potentially millions of people. It, it, I, again, and all of that could have happened just from this one ship. Uh, taking a wrong turn, literally, because it was taking uh, evasive actions, I'm sure, to avoid getting hit by these bombs. They could have taken a wrong turn, and suddenly, uh, NATO's gone. Thankfully. <laughs> NATO's gone, but millions of people could have been dead, could have been, been killed, and this massive Russia paranoia uh, would have been made exponentially worse, because the Russians would have just taken all the territory... Uh, in the peace conference that they had when they were the Soviet Union, they may even just add insult to injury by taking all of Poland. 
instead of parts of Poland and leaving the rest of Germany. They could just, oh my goodness. It could be a mess. It, it would be a mess. And there'd be nothing, there wouldn't be much that could be done to stop them at that point. And I, I make the Russians sound like an unstoppable menace, but it's not that they are unstoppable, it's that the logistics and the technology of the day would just work so much in their favor right now. And I fear that not enough people see that. I've argued my, I've argued with a fair number of people on the internet who think that uh, fighting China over Taiwan is a good idea. I say those people can't look at a map. Those people say that uh, I don't have principles for not wanting to stand with our allies. Um, I say I'm right. They say that um, uh, they're wrong. <laughs> but the logistics, the simple logistics that you really just look at a map to see work in favor of these countries we are currently in opposition to, that is Russia and China. And we have incidents like these, even incidents like these, and it could lead to something huge that we can't control, and that would be major national humiliations. Um, and here's the, here's the catch, America wasn't even involved in the initial incident, it was the UK losing a destroyer that would have caused all of this. I don't think we have level-headed individuals on either side at this point. I'm sure the Russians would love to get back at the United States for constantly fear-mongering against them, and I'm sure there are plenty of people who've been fear-mongered against the Russians so much that they would be down with a little bit of limited conflict with the Russians. And then Russia puts its old borders back together. Uh, at least in Europe, and what then? What do you do then? Half of Europe is gone again. Uh, well, not half of Europe, but the former Soviet states are. Parts of the rest of Europe are get eaten up. What do you do? And it all would have happened had this destroyer been hit, which is why I'm super critical of the British, because... While there's merit, again, to this fear of World War Three, as I've just laid out to you how this one destroyer getting hit could have led to a big, big mess in Europe, um, I'll take a step back. I'll just take a step back. Uh, after establishing that I believe Russia would emerge victorious from this uh, and the war would be devastating without nukes, having said that, well, I'll take a step back. And ask the question, because nobody else that I know of seems to be talking in this way or asking this question, and that is why the British thought it was a good idea to send a destroyer to an area of the Black Sea that is just 12 miles off the coast of Sebastopol. What were you assuming was going to happen? If, if we, even if we put ourselves in their launching, where Crimea is under Russian military occupation. What would sailing a destroyer into a zone 12 miles away from a major military occupation going to accomplish? And what, what are you thinking sending a destroyer there? 
Why would you do that? Like, I could get sending a destroyer and zigzagging through their uh, exclusive economic zone, uh, similar to what the United States does with its uh, freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea, of which I'm also not a fan, but you could see, you could do that. That wouldn't bring you extremely close to a war. You only need one warship to do it. You send a message, uh, but instead you sail them this close to Crimea. Like I saw it on a map. Just um, they were tracking, they were tracking the path that the destroyer was going on, and you could see um, the area around. They were really close to Crimea, and I was shocked. Like, why were you that close? And now we're supposed to be shocked that you got shot at. No, I'm granted. I am pretty surprised that the Russians went as far as to drop bombs on the. I keep trying to say the flight path. I've been holding myself back, but on on the sailing path of the destroyer, I am shocked that the Russians went that far. But why would Britain think that this was a good idea? I don't know. I can't wrap my head around. I can only be grateful that uh. The U.S. military leadership was um, smart enough to refrain from sending destroyers into the Black Sea. Otherwise, we could have had three destroyers because we were supposed to send two. The British sent theirs. After we refused to send ours, we could have had three destroyers in here. And there could have been even greater chances of someone making a wrong turn and boom, we're at war. Uh, A war that we're not going to win. My money is still on the Russians uh, with that due to the logistics, but, yeah, I died, I don't know what the British thought they were doing, I don't know why they thought this was a good idea, um, but thank goodness no one really got hurt, because if someone did, a whole lot more would have gotten hurt in the war that would follow, and maybe China would throw its weight behind the Russians, or perhaps we'd be too focused with the Russians to do anything about China, granted, I'm the isolationist in the room, so I don't think that any of this is our responsibility. And again, I I look I can look at a map too. <laughs> I'm on the wrong side of the ocean for this. But um, with, this could have been a mess. This could have been a mess. So uh, the vast majority of my criticism lies with Britain on this one. It really does. This is a this was a bad move, and it could have ended horrifyingly it could have ended horrifyingly and that's all i'll say on that but on a bit of a lighter tone a bit of a lighter tone we have a much more positive development and that is a ceasefire in tigray uh we've covered tigray a little bit and by a little bit i mean a lot and we've dedicated segments to it updates and we've talked about it in passing We've been covering it since it began back in February, not February, that's Myanmar. We've been covering it back in November of last year when it happened. Not quite at the very, very beginning like we were with Myanmar, but we got in pretty early, I'd say. And so we have a really big update because this is a pretty huge in the development of it all. All right, so... The federal government of Ethiopia has declared a ceasefire with the Tigray rebels after a year and a half of fighting. A whole year and a half. 
because it started, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Ethiopia has been in civil war since November of last year, specifically November 4th, when the Ethiopian government launched an all-out assault on strategic bases and positions in Tigray, oh, a region in northern Ethiopia, by Eritrea. Uh, what, that's sort of the border the region that we're talking about here, the border between Ethiopia and Eritrea. That's where Tigray is. So, um, Tigray was basically overwhelmed by the Ethiopian government assault, and they they made their move on the 4th of November. Uh, they, again, took strategic bases and positions, followed by the capture of the provincial capital in Tigray, which is Macau. Now, the federal government of Ethiopia, uh, who, from this point on, I'll just refer to as Ethiopia, and Tigray I'll refer to as Tigray. Ethiopia at that point basically declared that the war was over, and then an interim government was established in the Tigray region by Ethiopia. But as we've covered here on this little podcast of mine, the war wasn't actually over, and in fact... I said that due to the mountainous and hilly terrain of the Tigray region, combined with the sheer number of combatants who were on hand to do the fighting, which was around 250,000 men, the war could go on for quite a while, even though most of the fighters on the Tigray side were militiamen. I mean, just last week, we talked about the bombing that Ethiopia did on Tigray, which killed uh, 54 confirmed people. Uh, the toll has now risen to around 60. Um, but this week, however, we're talking about something a little different. It's still the conflict, but as I mentioned, Ethiopia has declared a ceasefire with Tigray. Now, what changed? They, this ceasefire, this declaration, I should say, uh, came after Tigrayan forces uh, under the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF for short, they retook their provincial capital, Mikel, reportedly to the celebration by some of the people living there. Now, the ceasefire was requested, interestingly enough, by that interim government in Tigray, which Ethiopia had installed. Uh, and this request for a ceasefire was obliged by Ethiopia. Again, this is the federal government of Ethiopia I'm referring to. Granted, no one consulted the TPLF about this, but I'd imagine that Tigray will accept this uh, peace deal. Not this peace deal, this ceasefire. It's not a peace deal by any means or any stretch of the imagination. It is just that, a ceasefire. But I do imagine uh, that Tigrays will accept this, even if just in an unofficial capacity. After all, they just got their capital city back, and they probably want some time to assert a more firm grip over it and the other territories that they're currently holding on to as well, uh, to avoid losing them again, really, in when the fighting resumes after the ceasefire ends. 
and asked for the date of the ceasefire's end, um, Ethiopia has officially said that, quote, this unilateral ceasefire declaration starts from today, June 28th, 2021, and will stay until the farming season ends. Uh, so Ethiopia, uh, end quote, there we go. <laughs> Uh, now, the Ethiopian farming season apparently lasts um, until about sep- the September-October range, uh, and June is almost over, so we're talking about a good two to three months of peace um, between the two. And again, that's assuming that the ceasefire isn't violated like it is in the Caucasus or in the Ukraine. Or probably in Libya, <laughs> there's a whole lot of ceasefire violations, or or in Israel for that damn matter. <laughs> well, ceasefires don't really get seem to get um, honored these days, but even with that, I'd imagine it'd be better than straight up invasion and occupation uh, for a good two to three months. Again. Assuming that it holds, not necessarily that it's honored, but that it generally holds, similar to what you'd see in um, Ukraine, where there's constant shelling, but uh, generally the borders don't move, instead of uh, Palestine, where there's constant shooting, and the Israelis move in and take your shit, because you try to bomb them with rockets, and mutual grievances hold out over calls for peace. So, there's that. Uh, so, assuming that the ceasefire doesn't get violated, um, uh, to, great, to a too great degree, I should say, we're looking at a good two to three months of relative peace in the Ethiopian country, like Ethiopia in whole. Uh, so, that includes Tigray. And I'll also stress that this is, again, an agreement... This is not an agreement, I should say. I messed up. I'll just start over. I'll also stress that this isn't an agreement, but rather, again, a unilateral declaration, as was stated by the Ethiopian federal government. Uh, It's non-binding, and Tigray technically can do whatever they feel like in response to this. I've laid out that I believe that they'll accept it in an unofficial capacity. Maybe they'll make it official. Um, maybe they'll, maybe they'll just ignore it and keep pressing forward because it, at this point, it looks like they've caught a bit of a second win and they're on the offensive right now. So maybe they don't want to stop. But I think they'll accept the peace um, for now, and I'll hope for peace because after everything we've seen. It would be a change for the better. And that is all I have for you today. Yes, sir. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world and Ethiopia is changing, folks. And we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.